Uh, welcome to the microphones, Jamie Calvin of the Invincible Institute and several other nomenclatures. Uh, Jamie has been a journalist and an activist. That's not a word we're supposed to use together, but he's proudly worn both over the years. I first met Jamie when he was cataloging along with his wife what was going on in public uh, housing high-rises uh, on the south side, buildings that are now gone. And uh, out of that grew some other work, um, the, the uh, view from the ground work, uh, which continues as part of the Invisible Institute, monitoring police reform efforts in Chicago. But the reason we had Jamie on this morning was to catch us up a little bit on the Laquan uh, murder trial that's commenced because you were in Laquan the McDonald. You were on uh, TV and uh, and the radio a bit uh, a few weeks ago when the defense attorneys for the police officer charged uh, was trying to get you to become a witness. Can you set up our listeners a little bit with what the latest chapter in this saga is about? Sure. This was this was an unanticipated chapter. Um, I about two and a half months ago had just come back from Europe, showed up at my office, and there was a subpoena waiting for me that had been delivered that morning uh, demanding that I appear in court. How timely. That I appear in court at 9 o'clock the, the following morning, less than 24 hours notice. It had been issued in the context of the murder trial of Jason Van Dyke, the officer um, accused of first-degree murder in the Laquan McDonald case. And there was you know, no explanation. Uh, it had been the, the judge, Judge Gaughan, had allowed the defense to subpoena me. Uh, one of the sort of strange and complicated things that people may or may not know about this, um, this case is that early in the proceedings, Judge Gaughan imposed uh, what's delicately called a decorum order. We would call it a gag order, uh, rest restricting what the parties can, can say publicly. So many of the pleadings in this case have been sealed and not available to the public. So even though I'm, I'm subpoenaed, I don't know what I'm being called for. I was actually learning things about the case from journalists who were in the, in the courtroom. In any case, it... Um, the, as it unfolded over, over the last couple of months, the allegation being made and the basis for issuing the subpoena was, you know, I should give a little bit of background. So I was the first reporter to, to cover right. the Laquan McDonald case. And that was prompted by a tip from somebody in law enforcement who got in touch about a week, 10 days after the incident in the fall of 2014. Tell us the incident, just for yeah, well, yeah, for those who talking. yeah, no, it's true. We use this kind of amazing shorthand now, the name of victims, yeah. to describe it's terrible, right? you know, atrocities and right. the associated systemic conditions that allow them. Um, Laquan McDonald, a seventeen-year-old boy, had just turned seventeen, was um, shot in a what is delicately called an officer-involved shooting on October 20th, um, 2014. The city narrative was that um, young boy behaving aggressively, erratically with a knife had lunged at police officers. Officer Van Dyke had shot him in self-defense and in defense of his uh, fellow officers. And Laquan McDonald had died sometime later in a nearby hospital. 
the the tip that I received from somebody close to the investigation was, you remember that case a couple of weeks ago that was in the media? It's not at all what was reported. It was uh, horrific. Uh, the um, and there's dash cam video of it. This was he, the kicker, right? He also he also importantly provided enough information that I was able to track down a civilian witness to the shooting. So see that that by itself, uh, Jamie. You, were, you had put yourself in position through years and years of solid, careful um, journaling of what was going on, mostly in Stateway Gardens and other uh, uh, projects at the time at the hands of police, some of whom acted as a gang themselves right. in, in the projects, just uh, terrorizing people. But you had done that in such a way, such a way respectfully, that you, you had the relationship that someone would pick up the phone and call you which is pretty, uh, or whatever they did, email you, whatever yeah. form they took. But that's impressive, and that's, that's the kind of thing that we should not forget, that that's what journalism was about, people picking up, you know, dropping a dime and saying, no, no, the real story is something else. Well, and I think that's also what this, this uh, legal controversy over the last several months was about, because the um, – demand from the defense attorneys and and you know I think we should acknowledge that um, the right to a fair trial is is a really significant constitutional right. right and so it's not a foregone conclusion right I can imagine as a journalist having exculpatory evidence for somebody who's facing a, you know a capital crime, charge of a, a capital offense and you would have a real you have a real sort of constitutional collision at that point right. between the First Amendment and right to a fair trial. This was bizarre. So the the um, as it came out over time, they wanted me to reveal my source. And the rationale for that was an argument that I had received from the source um, documents that were protected. There's a principle called the Garrity principle that if you've been – compelled to make a statement by your employer, in this case the, the government, uh, the, the police department, in, a, in an administrative proceeding, that statement can't be used against you. It can't be used as evidence in a criminal proceeding. Um, so if your employer has insisted at the, at the threat of termination that you make a statement so, like, so an IPRA investigation um, and independent police review authority investigation of Laquan McDonald would be in, or of, of Jason Van Dyke's involvement in the Laquan McDonald case would be in that category. Anyway, the argument is I received documents that that were protected, and then it goes into this kind of hallucinatory <laughs> space. First of all, I never received those documents. I, I was prepared to say that in court and to testify to that, that I had from the start not been acting as a journalist. I'd been acting as um, uh, an anti-police activist. I had um, shaped the witness testimony of eyewitnesses to the shooting uh, with knowledge I'd gained from these documents. I had colluded with the FBI. This is the, the prosecution's? No, no, this no. is the defense. defense. Attorney. The, the defense. defense. I, had, I had colluded with the FBI that F the FBI had allowed me to sit in on two um, interviews with uh, witnesses to the shooting. And I had further conspired with the lawyers for the family, for the estate of Laquan McDonald. 
Pretty and ingenious legal argument. So huh? it was. It was somehow the video dropped out of this narrative, but um, <laughs> or the mayor holding on. Shot eleven times, right? Uh, 16, Sixteen times. Wow. Sixteen times, and and you know it was quite extraordinary uh, to hear this being 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 um, unfolded as an argument, and then the the sort of culminating thing that was reported on some in the media is uh, Dan Herbert, who is the the attorney for for Officer Van Dyke, had a final sort of peroration in which he compared the situation of his um, his client to the defendants in a 1936 Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Mississippi, where th- three sharecroppers had who had been charged with the murder of a white farmer had their um, convictions set aside by the court because they'd been tortured. They'd been repeatedly whipped to, you know, just flayed raw. One of them subjected to a mock uh, lynching that left rope burns on his neck when he, you know, came into court. And even in that era, the Supreme Court set the convictions aside. So <laughs> Mr. Herbert sort of drew the analogy between, between that and the damage that this is I, outrageous. I, that I and the media generally had done to outrageous. to Van Dyke's. Um, Do you think that defense hurt him with the judge? Well, you know, it. it I think it was kind of a. Um, it might have been a preview of what's coming in the trial. You mm-hmm. know, the notion that this is really something created by the media, mm-hmm. and of course, there's a sense in which it's true. If it hadn't blown up, if uh, it hadn't been reported, he'd still be on the job. It wouldn't. Heat. It, yeah, it wouldn't have. If the mayor hadn't hindered the video, all sorts of things. But so, it it was a it was a sort of fact. ultimately ultimately uh, the judge. Quashed the subpoena, um, said it was uh, a fishing expedition, and there was no no basis for it. But I, I I would caution, you know, it's been widely perceived as a free speech victory. Mm-hmm. I think that's the wrong mm-hmm. reading of it. Um, the reality is, for over two months, I was caught up in this litigation. Yeah. I'm really fortunate in this and well positioned. I had great pro bono uh, legal representation. The Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press filed a friend of court brief and recruited 18 major media. I never expected to have the Wall Street Journal sort of um, endorsing my positions. You know, so I mean this um, impressive the, dude. The, well, you know, but the point is, there was this huge, um, the Hillman Prize. I won something called the Hillman Prize last year for other reporting. Um, the judges for the Hillman Prize issued a statement that hundreds of people signed. So I was, you know, and I'm also associated with, um, you know, the case of the decade, the century, whatever in Chicago. Um, so there's no question about the importance of the reporting, the importance of protecting the whistleblower. In, in this case. Imagine, though, you know, another reporter without those resources, not positioned the way I was in relation to, to this, where you're facing these legal costs, uh, where you're essentially being defamed in public, right? This was pretty defamatory stuff that... That uh, except for who it was coming from. Yeah, and I don't. I'm. I've been in controversies my entire adult career. I've got a pretty thick skin about this. But you could imagine being in another, in another situation. You're facing these legal costs. You don't know where it's going to go. And and the truth is, on that was resolved on December 16th. I went into court 
with a team of four lawyers, great you know civil rights lawyers representing me. And we went in not knowing what was going to happen. There was. Did a, you have your toothbrush with you? I had my tooth. Well, you know, figuratively speaking, I had I had a lawyer prepared to start the process of bonding me out if it was held in contempt. And we went in prepared for multiple scenarios. One of which was I would be taken into custody in court and held for contempt. And in fact. There was a real possibility of that with Judge Gone. It ultimately was resolved not on First Amendment or reporter privilege grounds, but on grounds of just there was no factual basis for the, for the subpoena. If it had gone to the question of reporter's privilege, we would have had a fight. So do you think this gets as far as it did, not only because of the high-profile nature of the trial and an aggressive defense attorney, but in an era of fake news and the media is delegitimized by political leadership. Doesn't that I would heighten worry the pressure that. on journalists? Yeah, I would worry about that. So I've been in these controversies before 10, 11 years ago. I w was hauled yes. up in federal court and, again, de defied. And it, then I it think was, we had you on then, too. Then it was the city coming after me, and it was actually, that was 18 months, and it was much more th thre threatening in the sense that there is no federal shield law, no reporter's privilege uh, at the federal level. But I think so this could have happened any time, right? A controversy like this can happen any time. This one had the flavor of this sort of Trumpian moment. It felt like and, and I think the support both that was reflected both in the fake news side of it, but also in the massive support I received, which I think was beyond, right. went, reached beyond me, beyond the Laquan McDonald case, to reflect something about people's anxieties about so the First Amendment. your caution, which you just had said, is, is a well stated, given the kind of federal judges that are being named as Completely. we speak, um, that we will be stuck with long after we've gotten rid of the guy who's uh, assigning them. And, and those, those are judges who will have an effect. I think it's really important. I think both to Tom's point and to yours, I think it's really important to, to, take, to learn the right lessons from this episode, uh, the right takeaways. And I think it would be, as I said, wrong to regard it as a free, speech, a free speech victory. But I think what is encouraging and what we have to think about going forward is the, the civil society response was hugely promising. And to go to what Katie would say before uh, about the, the whistleblowers who approach a journalist like me, right. that's what's at stake. Yes, is I, I was going to defy this anyway, with or without the support. I, that was clear. It wasn't even a choice for me. It's just the job description. But the, the, um, the, the critical thing is, I think, because of the support, because of the sort of public meanings that were generated by the support, not through the judge, but through civil society, there are other reporters who are more likely to take similar stands and other potential whistleblowers more likely to come forward. Jamie, uh, I'd like to ask you two quick questions uh, before we close. Uh, can you tell us... Uh, briefly where the case is at now and what do you think the ramifications of it are today for for the mayor because he uh you know he and mccarthy were both accused of covering it up and uh that was uh, had a seemingly a heavy impact for a while but now it's been a bit of time so i'm not sure where he's at yeah and i'm not i'm not either but i i, I would i may have said this when i was last on the show i think it's really important to um, question the cover-up narrative, by which I mean that um, I personally wish it were a cover-up. 
I, I find that a sentimental narrative compared to what we're really confronting. Hmm. I mean, if it were a cover-up, if it really was the mayor and a handful of co-conspirators, they knew they did a bad thing, they covered up a bad thing, they compounded the harm, you know, classic kind of cover-up narrative. You, you vote him out of office, you prosecute him. That, if that's the diagnosis, that I think what is revealed by the Laquan McDonald case and why it's become the kind of master narrative for police reform in the city is standard operating procedure. This, what, what was disclosed in this case was the sort of machinery by which black lives disappear yeah. in the city. And that's a different diagnosis. And that's a different, you know, and I think it's just, re, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mitigate anything in terms of the mayor, McCarthy, other actors in this. But my, I, I'm just finishing now. I'm uh, the, uh, both a, a, you know, a major voice and the producer of a feature-length documentary on the case that we're doing, which is not about Jason Van Dyke, guilt or innocence. It's about the institutional response. And, you know, virtually everybody we talked to at every level of this essentially thought they were doing their jobs. And that's scary. You know, it, you know, it would be it, the cover up would be a departure from the norm. Right. And everybody recognizes it's as a departure from the norm. I think what we're confronting is the norm. And it's really important to get that right if we're going to realize the potential for reform in this moment. Jamie Calvin, thank you so much for being with us again. And we'll invite you back right now. As, as ever, as ever. <laughs> uh, maybe when this film comes yeah. out, we'll have you back for that. 